seeing you again and just like family. So, uh, so grateful. And of course, welcome to all you, uh, to people who are new here. I think Trisha mentioned my name's David and and we're the pastors here at Catch the Fire Ottawa, and it's always such a privilege, especially in the summer. It's kind of ironic because a lot of people go, of course, on vacation and stuff, but we also get a lot of visitors from uh, other places visiting Ottawa, and so it's nice, always nice to have guests, and so uh, welcome uh, to everybody. So for those of you who've been here, and if you haven't, we're in, we're in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit called the Spirit Series, and it goes uh, along with this theme we have this year of the presence-driven life. And so uh, we've been really talking about some of the fundamentals of our faith because um, I always start off by saying, giving the reason, well, one of the reasons for this series is the fact that I believe, um, for the most part, again, I make generalizations sometimes, but really, for the most part, the, the Christian theology in general has neglected the central and crucial role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, specifically in terms of how crucial the Holy Spirit was in the early church's understanding and experience in theology. Okay, and so um, the thing that's a challenge about that is that the Holy Spirit lies at the heart of everything in the New Testament theology and experience. And so it's such a crucial part of our faith. And, you know, I often say it's like we give lip service to the Holy Spirit. He's you know, in the creeds and in our doctrines, of course, we'll say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about the crucial, fundamental role he plays experientially in our lives and in our theology. And it's, it's really interesting to me how uh, somehow he gets left to the periphery, even though he's right next to Christ as the center of our faith. And all the fundamental, important parts of our faith. And uh, so three major, uh, talking about the center of New Testament theology, three of the arguably center uh, uh, aspects, central aspects rather, that uh, are part of our faith, the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in all three. So I always post this up here, showing you, because these are kind of uh, the main things I'm hitting on. The first few messages I talked about the Spirit is the key to the eschatological framework, which is the essential framework of the New Testament. And if you don't know what that means, it's essentially the early church's idea of the end times. And they thought because the Spirit came back that we were in the end. And so you see this in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit poured out and people were perplexed. Peter says, this is, this is fulfilling this prophecy from Joel, in my last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So in other words, they thought, okay, this is the sign that we're in the last days. And this perspective that we're already in the last days, but we're not yet, it's not consummated, it's not yet completed, that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ, influenced everything in New Testament theology. So it's really such an important framework to understand the whole entire New Testament, because all the early church, including the writers of the Bible, had this perspective. Um, So if you're interested, you can check that out. But the second one, which is what we're on now, is that the Spirit is a key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ. Christ, which is the central issue of our faith in the New Testament, salvation in Christ. And the Spirit plays such a key role in this. So the last couple times I've been talking about that. Um, and then we talked a couple weeks ago, but we're going to go more in detail on this, is that the Spirit plays a key role in what it means for us to become the people of God, which is the central goal of, the, of God is to create a people for his name. And that is from the Old to the New Testament. He's creating a people of his, for his name. But the difference is, in the New Testament, it includes Jew and Gentile in one spirit. We're going to be talking about all that someday. 
Uh, and if you're interested, I gave a message on what is the temple of the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago, which had dealt all about that. But what I talked about last time, and this is a continuation because now we're dealing with salvation in Christ. And so last week, I talked about how important it is to have this understanding of the Trinity because New Testament writers like Paul were Trinitarian at the core of their experience and theology. I mean, it's funny to me how even Christians these days, some of them get really nervous saying when you talk about the Trinity, uh, and you guys probably have heard of that. Um, and, and I understand it because people have a hard time reconciling how it's one God, three persons, right? You know, theologians have been trying to figure that out for centuries. And the problem people have with it is that the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. But, you know, ultimately, and if you're interested, last week I, I gave you a whole bunch of scripture showing every time Paul talks about salvation, he talks about it in terms of the triune activity of the three divine persons, God, Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. So salvation in Christ is the cooperative work of the three divine persons. And I, I mentioned last time, I showed you scripture after scripture after scripture, especially in Paul. Whenever he talks about salvation in Christ, he talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so God is saving a people for his name through the redeeming work of Christ and the applying work of the Spirit. So just as a kind of summary of last time, the scriptures where Paul speaks of salvation, he speaks in terms of God the Father initiating it. It's really interesting. You see this over and over again. It's always the Father initiating it. It's predicated on the love of God. It says it all, in all these different scriptures, it said that God loves you, God so... And it's always the love of God is the foundation to all of this. Not only salvation in Christ, our entire experience, our existence is predicated on the love of God. And so uh, when Paul talks about salvation, he always talks about God initiating. God sent his son. God sent the spirit of his son. Over and over again. So God initiated. Christ effected it historically. So he's the one who's historically accomplished our salvation. At one time in history, he died for our sins, rose on the third day. So historically, salvation was initiated by God. But the Spirit is the one who effects it experientially in, the, in our individual lives and in the church. He's the one who brings it to about, okay? And you see this over and over and over again. And the point I want to make is you can't have the first two without the third. <laughs> you cannot have salvation in Christ without the effective work of the Holy Spirit bringing it to pass. Crucial part of salvation. Um, somehow we've, made, we've almost done that. And I showed you how part of the central theology of salvation over and over again in the New Testament included all three. Yet we've somehow kind of neglected the Holy Spirit's role in it. Um, he, we, like I said earlier, we treat the Holy Spirit uh, as part of our doctrine and our creeds, but I'm talking the experiential reality. And I, 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 mentioned, I said this, rather than Trinitarians, many have become practicing Binitarians. Father, Son, Leave the Holy Spirit out, okay? Even in our language of salvation. But you'll see in the New Testament, almost every scripture on salvation has Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just the Father and Holy Spirit. But you'll see. I'll give you a couple examples. The point is he plays such an important role. Now, so I want to say this. Salvation in Christ is not simply a theological truth based on God's prior action in the historical work of Christ, which is often what we've made it. 
Salvation is an experienced reality. And it's made so by the person of the Spirit coming into our lives and affecting it. Okay? You guys remember Galatians 4, 4 to 6, that God sent his Son to redeem us from the law. Then it says he sent the Spirit of our Son, the Spirit into our hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit. It's, he also says that in Romans 8, uh, 15 through 17. The Spirit brought about our adoption to sonship, it says. So the experiential dynamic, the aspect of the redemption that occurred historically in Christ is affected, is brought about by the Spirit. So one simply cannot be a Christian without the effective work of the Trinity. And that's why this is so important. Okay, that's why this, and we, you're going to see that more today. If you're interested, you can, you can hear more last week. But what I want to sh- share today is the spirit in Christian life. We're going to be focusing on conversion specifically, but I want to show you how important the spirit plays in all of Christian life from beginning to end. Okay? So, I would argue that the one, the one thing that tends to separate us from the early believers is their awareness and experience of the spirit. Even more than cultural differences, (laughs) even more than cultural differences, I think that the main difference between us and them is in regard to their awareness and experience of the Spirit versus ours, generally speaking, okay? They lived, walked, and moved in the Spirit. That's how they operated. We, on the other hand, tend to live, walk, and move according to our heads. We're a heady Christian outfit. They were a spirit Christian outfit. Now, that doesn't mean they cut off their heads, right? They, of course, Paul is a genius. It's just that they lived out of their experience of the Spirit. This is throughout the entire New Testament. So, for the early church, the Spirit was the crucial ingredient of everything we might call the the Christian life. Everything. Okay? He wasn't just simply an idea or a creedal thing like we've made it. It's part of a doctrine, like some ethereal kind of theory. The Holy Spirit's technically here somewhere. <laughs> I believe we're in the presence, you know, or whatever. No, the presence is here, experientially. Now, for them, the Spirit was this experienced reality, okay? And it was the singular most important ingredient in the Christian experience and expression, and that's what I'm saying, a presence-driven life. is isn't just a catchy catchphrase. It's really how we're supposed to live as Christians, Okay, and then that's why I'm spending so much time on this in this series. Now, what I want to say is salvation includes faith and faithfulness. Getting in and staying in. <laughs> and I'm going to show you this because we've made it all about conversion. As, and we define conversion as the beginning point. Okay? How many souls did you get saved? That isn't, conver- that isn't the biblical definition of conversion at all. It's about getting in and staying in, okay? So salvation in Christ includes both. In other words, getting saved has to do with faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ your entire life. It's an ongoing thing. And the Greek word pistis, that's the word we define as faith, has both of these ideas. And I'm going to show you this in a second. Trust and trusting faithfulness. You see this, for instance, in the fruit of the Spirit, which I'm going to show you now. Think about this statement. This is in Galatians 5. Look at this, verse 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, we're talking about the Spirit, 
we eagerly await by faith, pistios, the righteousness for which we hope. Look at this. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision has any value. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts. <laughs> this is clearly an important thing he's about to say. Look at this. Is faith, pistis, expressing itself through love, agape. It's the only thing that counts. Look at this. How many, verse 22, this is the same chapter, a few verses later. Talking about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. He's the one who produces that love in us. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, same word, pistis. He produ the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He produces that faith and that love in us. And it's an ongoing faithfulness. Okay, so it's not just a one-time thing. It's that he produces the character of God in us. He produces the righteousness of God in us. That's why the primary imperative in Paul is walk by the Spirit. He says that right in between those two verses I said. Verse 16. For walk, I tell you, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? Then he says those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law. So one's whole life involves trusting in Christ, faith, trust, belief. They all go together. The, 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 word, the word belief, it doesn't encompass it all because we, we think belief equals head knowledge. <laughs> the Greek word encompasses this idea of trust as well. You're trusting in Christ. You're believing and trusting. So the problem is if we make it just believing, we make it about head knowledge. We make it about here's the ten propositions of your faith. Do you mentally assent to this? Yeah, I meant, I, okay, I agree. Oh, you're saved. Really? <laughs> really? In our culture, that's what we've done. But no, it's, it's, there, there's a huge aspect of salvation that's missing if we relegate it to just head knowledge. Huge. And I'm going to show you that more today. So one gets in in order to stay in, and salvation includes the whole process, not simply just the beginning point. Not simply just the beginning point. Okay? And I love huge evangelistic crusades. I love it. I love them. But I've heard horror stories of, okay, wow, hundreds of thousands of people got saved, and then years later, they're into crazy weird stuff. Because we've made it all about numbers and, and, you know, oh, this many people got saved, but then there, there's no discipleship. There's no ongoing, you know, try, uh, helping them navigate this. So it's like, hey, we mentally assent. Yeah, that was awesome. But it's ongoing from beginning to end. Okay, so too long the church has understood conversion as having to do with this just the beginning point. Now, the biblical understanding of conversion has to do with making disciples of former pagans. Jesus never, ever, ever, ever said go and make converts. Ever. Ever. I defy you to try and find that once in the Bible. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's not just the Alpha course and then you got it. It's no lifelong from beginning to end. Learning how to crucify the flesh so that you're living by the Spirit as a disciple of Christ. Through your entire life. It never ends. There's always more. Okay, so in the, in the long run... 
Only disciples are converts in the long run. You see this, just for an example, Matthew 24, 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Okay? Not just to raise your hand at an evangelistic crusade once. No. It's a lifelong process. Okay? Now, with all that being said, even though it has to do with ongoing faithfulness, conversion does have a starting point, and that is important. Okay? It does have a starting point. So today we're going to look at the role of the Spirit in the starting point. Okay? And this has, it's talking about getting in now. Okay? So, it, so, so you're going to see that the Spirit plays a crucial, crucial, crucial role, not only in the ongoing faithfulness, but at the beginning point. So that's the emphasis today, the Spirit and conversion. Did you receive the Spirit is the question. So the Spirit is the absolute key to understanding Christian conversion in the early church. Conversion was primarily understood as the work of the Spirit. And I'm going to show you that biblically. Okay? So the Spirit was responsible both for the preaching that brought about conversion and the response to that preaching that brought about the conversion in the hearers' lives. He's responsible for both. Okay? So, this is an interesting thing I want you to talk, consider. No one in the Bible ever asks, are you saved? Okay, the language we use for, for salvation, it's an interesting thing. We'll ask, are you saved? Did you accept Christ? Never, do you know how they asked if you're saved? Did you receive the Spirit? And I talked about, a lot about this last time showing you scripture. I'm going to show you again because I realized this goes against a whole bunch of like contemporary modern evangelical lingo. We come up with this language that isn't even biblical. The question, are you saved? You won't find that in the Bible. Now, why did they ask this? When they, I'm talking about when they ask people if they're, they're saved. The question they asked is, whether or not they received, did you receive the Spirit? Why? Because the evidence they were saved was whether or not they had the Spirit. And if they didn't have the Spirit, they weren't saved. Now, I know that statement makes a lot of people nervous precisely because we've taken the Holy Spirit essentially out of salvation. But I'm going to show you scripturally, and I'm going to develop this. And if you're interested, I gave a whole bunch, if you're here last week, I gave a whole bunch of scriptures showing you this. Because I want, I want to be founded in scripture, and, and I, I'm, so I'm just using scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture to show you this, and I'm going to continue doing this. Okay, because it's so important. And I think, like I said, the main difference between the early church and us is this, the experienced dynamic of salvation and the Christian life by the Spirit. We're missing for the most part. So if you don't believe me, here's one scripture just for the, those of you who might be nervous right now, because this is so succinct and clear, you can't argue with this scripture at all. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God is in you. Now look at this. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You see that? If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian, in other words. That's what, is that not what it's saying? Okay, so I'm going to show you other <laughs> scriptures on this in case you're nervous. I'm not just giving some isolated scripture 
to try and convince you. I'm going to show you this probably for weeks. But I want to show you this verse. Because talking about how, so like I said, their question was, did you receive the Spirit? Look at Galatians 3, 2-5. And we talked a little bit about this last week. But I want to emphasize that element of it. Look at this. Paul's saying, I would like to learn just one thing from you. What, what's that, Paul? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Think about that. That's his way of asking, did you get saved? That's his way of asking how we would ask, did you get saved by works of the law or by believing what you heard? No one, I guarantee you, in the contemporary church would ever ask this. Why? Because we've left the experience dynamic out, essentially, from salvation. So what Paul does to make a case, he doesn't go to theology. He doesn't go... His primary foundational argument is experience. Did you receive this? He didn't go to, hey, this scripture says that, this scripture says that. Do you believe that? He says, did you receive the Spirit? Not, are you saved? Then look at this. Are you so foolish? Look, after beginning by means of the Spirit, talking about conversion, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So in other words, think about this. Talked about ongoing Christian life. He's saying the same way you finish is the same way you began. Right? Because they can't argue with the encounter they had. When Paul was like... He, <laughs> some people were trying to get them under law. They were trying to get them to follow Jewish customs. And Paul said, guys, you, how foolish are you? Look at this argument. Did you receive the Spirit by getting circumcised? Did you receive the Spirit by following the food laws? Did you receive the Spirit by following holidays? And their, their answer clearly would be, uh, no, we didn't. Right? So then he goes on. Now, but, okay, so what's your logic here? After be beginning in the spirit, are you now trying to do it in the flesh? Are you now trying to work your way into it? Are you trying to finish that way? Because, no, the, the way you finish is the way you began, by the spirit. That's the foundation of this whole book. That's why in the chapter 5, when I showed you that, the fruit of the Spirit is this. Walk in the Spirit. You'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the, those who are led by the Spirit are what? Not under law. Because you're saved now. You're under a new covenant of Spirit, and you don't have to follow these old covenant rules. It's all, the one identity marker of whether you're saved or not is if you have, a, if you have the Spirit. So then, so then he goes on. Have you experienced so much in vain? <laughs> appealing to their experience. If it really was a vain, so again, does God give you this, his spirit, talking present tense now, and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? And the, clearly the question is, yeah, even present tense, the spirit's coming uh, not because we're doing stuff. It's grace. Because you believe. Now think... Talking about Acts now, I like last week I gave, I want to give examples in Acts because it's, it's nice. You, you get this theology uh, in Paul and then you can show this in Acts. This is why Paul asked this question in Acts 19. Okay? He can, I'll show you the scriptures. But he, 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 he comes across these disciples and he's like, man, there's clearly something wrong with these people. Okay, so even though they're called disciples, there's something wrong with their discipleship. So then he asked, did you receive the Spirit? 
Because if they didn't receive the Spirit, they're obviously not Christians in any early church understanding of that idea. That's why he asks that. Because that's the one identity marker of whether you're saved or not, whether you have the Spirit. Okay? So he doesn't ask, were you saved? He says, did you receive the Spirit? Look, I'll show you. So while pa- this is Acts 19, 1-7. While Paul and Apollos were in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? That's the question. They answered, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? He's like, oh, okay, so you're not saved. John's baptism, they replied, ah, ah, guys, I got good news for you. Okay, look at what he says. Paul says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He, look at this. He told people, the people, to believe in the one coming after him. In Jesus. So in other words, they didn't know that. They didn't know that they're supposed to believe in Jesus Christ. See, Paul's like, here's your problem. They were disciples of John the Baptist. He's like, guys, he said, no, don't believe in him. Believe in the one who's coming after Jesus. So then on hearing this, they're like, oh, that's the foundation, Jesus Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then look at this. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Evidence that they were saying. Experience, reality. Last week we talked about Acts 10. When Peter's preaching to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit uh, fell. And if you remember, that was the evidence they were saved. They couldn't believe it, that Gentiles were getting saved. And, and Peter's like, oh my goodness, these Gentiles are getting saved? Why? Because the Holy Spirit came on there speaking in tongues. So he's like, then he says, how can we prevent from baptizing? How can we stand in God's way? They're obviously saved because they got the Spirit. Then when they go back to Jerusalem, they get royally rebuked. What are you guys eating with Gentiles and preaching to them? Peter says, guys, I'm innocent. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. The Holy Spirit told me to go there. I go there. I preach. The Holy Spirit comes on there speaking in tongues just like us. And they're like, oh. Well, in that case, can't argue with that. Why? Because that was the evidence they were saved. They couldn't argue with that. So you see this throughout the New Testament. Receiving the Spirit was the evidence that they were saved in the early church. And I showed you a couple scriptures, and I'm going to keep going on this to, to show you that this is throughout the whole Bible in the New Testament. It's this experiential dimension of salvation that's often missing from the contemporary Christian, Western Christianity. Okay, like I said, we made it all about head knowledge. Here's the tenets of our faith. You mentally assent to that. Not, did you receive the Spirit? Have you experienced so much in vain? Appealing to their encounter in God. Not only is this experiential dimension of the Spirit a crucial part of the gospel message, Paul talked about the Spirit's Whenever he talked about salvation, the Spirit was in there. We, we hardly ever mention the Spirit when we're telling people about salvation, do we? Paul always did, and I showed you a billion, I'm exaggerating, but a billion scriptures last week showing over and over whenever Paul talks about salvation, the Spirit was a crucial part of it. In the message of salvation and in the experience. But he also plays a crucial role in the theology of salvation. Look at, we all know this. You know, we we use these terms like born again. Look at what Jesus says about this, talking about conversion. John 3 Verse 3, he says, Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
Then he elaborates in verse 5. He says, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. You see that crucial part of salvation. That's the one thing he says. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you're not entering the kingdom. That's the one evidence that you're saved. So then he goes on, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. You see how important the spirit is with conversion. It's crucial. I seriously don't know how we've left it out for the most part. You know? Like, even when we ask, were you born again, what does that mean to us? Does it actually mean, did you receive the Spirit? Are, have, do you have that experience dimension? Or is it that you agreed to these ten, whatever, making up a number, tenets of our faith and mentally assent to them? So, it's not possible to read the Bible without recognizing the crucial role the Spirit has in everything in Christian life. And that's not an exaggeration. That's why I'm spending all these weeks on it. I'm going to continue spending weeks on it because he has to do with everything in Christian life. First, in conversion. This is the beginning point. But second, in the whole of ongoing Christian life. For personal empowerment, for ethics, for worship, and especially for community life. The Spirit's the crucial ingredient with community life. And it's interesting, you look at the Old Testament, the main sins in the Old Testament was idolatry, sexual immorality. In the New Testament, it's divisions and dissensions within the church community. The number one thing that's brought up in different ways. Think about that. Isn't that interesting? The number one sin, divisiveness within the community. And if you remember when I talked about the temple of the Holy Spirit, what does Paul say? It had to do with people creating divisions. And he says, don't you guys realize you're the temple of the Holy Spirit as a gathered community? Not the building, you guys. And he says, God's going to destroy the person who destroys his temple. In other words, the people who are creating these divisions. It's a serious thing. God gives a lot of dignity to the church because we're the fulfillment of the second temple prophecies. Us as a community, gathered community. Not Keshefar Auto, I'm talking about the church, wherever it gathers. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Spirit and getting in. I'm going sh- to show you more on this. Okay? Talking about conversion now. So there's a whole bunch of components when, when you're talking about the experience of salvation. There's hearing the gospel. There's faith in Christ. There's conversion. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the different metaphors and images that are used for conversion, for salvation. Okay? And we're going to talk about that more. In the future, the gift of the Spirit and baptism in water. Now, I want to say this. The Spirit plays a crucial role and central role in every single component of salvation except for baptism. Why? And that's because baptism is the human response to God's prior activity of salvation. That's our response to being saved, okay? But the Spirit plays a crucial role to all four are all the components of salvation from beginning to end. The first one, hearing the gospel. So conversion's the work of the Spirit beginning with the proclamation and the revelation of the gospel. He's the one who actually opens up our understanding to the gospel. And we'll talk about that. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. 
But what I want to say now is Christian life begins with the hearing of the gospel, which both precedes faith, and I have Romans 10, 14 there, which I'll read to you in a couple minutes, and is accompanied by faith. And I have a few scriptures up there. I'm going to show you a couple of them right now. Okay, so preaching and he hearing the gospel is a crucial part of salvation. So two things are involved with hearing the gospel. Okay, the gospel is God's very word. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And therefore the truth that must be believed and trusted in. Okay, and there's a couple references there. Which is revealed by the Spirit. The act of preaching and responding to the message are also the work of the Spirit. He plays a crucial role in every single step here. And I'll show you that scripturally. Here's an example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Remember, salvation's founded, founded, founded on the love of God. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Talk about salvation through what? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Both. Right? He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the Trinity there too. God chose you. He saved you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then so that you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard. Talking about hearing the gospel. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see the Trinity again. But the point is, look at this. When you believed, you were marked with a seal when you heard the message of truth. So you see the Spirit plays a crucial role in that. Romans 10, 14 and 15. This is Paul asking now. He's talking about salvation. He's showing the progression here of what's required. He's going in reverse, though. He says, how then can they call on the Lord, they have, other than the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent, sent by the Lord? So you see this, preaching, hearing, belief, and confession, crucial parts of it, and salvation. And the belief and confession are our response to the message. So because preaching and responding are a crucial parts of this, I'm going to show you how the Spirit plays a role in both of those. Okay, talking about conversion. So, so this is interesting. I want you to think about this. Paul the Apostle refers to his own ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. That's what he talks when he's referring to his ministry. That's how he describes it. Ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the new covenant is empowered by the Spirit and results in others receiving the Spirit. That's why he calls it a ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit ministry is accompanied by far greater glory than the former covenant, he says, which was on Moses. So I'm going to show you this, just a portion of Scripture. The whole chapter, Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is about this, but I'm going to show you a couple of things. So I want you to notice how Paul defines his ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. So verse 6, he says, He made us competent as ministers of what? A new covenant. Not of the letter, but what? Of the Spirit. That's how he defines the new covenant, the new covenant of Spirit. The law of the Spirit of Christ. He says in Romans 8, 2. Okay? For the letter kills, talking about the old covenant, but the Spirit gives life. 
So then he goes on to elaborate. He says, now if the ministry that brought death, talking about the old covenant, which was engraved in letters of stone came with glory so that the Israelites couldn't look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, the transitories it was. Look at this. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? You see, it's... Like I said, it has to do with Christian ethics. It's the Holy Spirit who produces God's righteousness in us. You see that in the fruit of the Spirit, but you see this all over the Bible. For instance, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink, but what? Of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He produces God's righteousness in us. And that's the difference. It's all by grace. That's the difference between the new and old covenant. That's why he says ministry, the covenant of the Spirit. So Paul refers frequently, okay, I want to, I want to, he frequently to his own effective ministry as a direct result of the work of the Spirit. Okay, this work not, not only included conviction concerning the truth of the gospel, but also signs and wonders, okay? And all of this resulted in changed lives. Now, I showed you some of these last week. I want to show you again to make the point because we're talking about preaching. We're talking about the role the Spirit has in conversion and the role He has in preaching and getting people converted. Okay, so Romans 15, 18. I'll just do quick because I went in detail last week. This is Paul talking, and he's summarizing his entire ministry up until this point to the church at Rome. So he says, I will venture not to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. Both. He elaborates. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. Okay, you see that? It's both. So that for, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. According to this scripture, a full gospel message has both. Right? That's what he's saying. By what I've said and done, proclamation, demonstration of the Spirit's power, miracles, signs, and wonders, both. And if that's true, and we've made it all about words, only proclamation for the most part, that's a partial message according to this definition, isn't it? We have not preached the full gospel message because we're missing the crucial element of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's crucial. It's not optional. You know, we often wonder, why is the Western church so ineffective? And I think this has a lot to do with it because we've resorted to human tactics, not the power of God. But the opposite is true in the Bible. And that's why John Wimber's ministry is so revolutionary. Power evangelism. And he was really uh, fundamentally uh, revolutionary in the traditional con con uh, conservative evangelical stream. Introducing the Holy Spirit back, showing biblically how crucial this is. And he said, you know, I searched this for years, and I just assumed there'd be one or two isolated scriptures that show that salvation accompanied the signs and wonders. He said, I can't find one that doesn't have the stuff. In other words, the power of the Spirit is always part of the conversion, of the gospel message, of salvation, of evangelism. But that's not an isolated scripture. You see, look, whenever Paul talks about event, when he got people saved, he says the same thing in different ways. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to show you a few of these. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come in eloquence of human wisdom, which is often what we do. He says, no. 
As, as I proclaim to you the testimony of Christ, he's talking about the gospel. Look at this in verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. See, we've made it faith predicated on our ability to convince you. We've made it about human wisdom in words. Okay? And he says, I came to you not with words of wisdom, but with a demonstration, precisely because I don't want your faith predicated on my ability to convince you. I want it predicated on the power of God. Because you can't argue with an encounter. So that's why in Galatians 3, the scripture I read earlier, he appeals to their experience of the Spirit. He says, did you receive the Spirit by believing? Did you experience so much in vain? Okay, how many of you would find anyone arguing that in contemporary churches? Probably no one. We would go to theology probably. That's fine. It's a part of it. The message is a crucial part of it. But the Spirit is also a crucial part of the full gospel message. And we've lost that somehow for the most part. Again, I'm generalizing. But here's another one if you didn't believe me. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-6. Again, this is the first time the Holy Spirit's mentioned in the Gospels. Paul's talking about their salvation. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, look again, loved by God, that's the foundation, that he has chosen you, talking about their salvation. How? Because our gospel came to you not simply in words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That's how you know God chose you. That's how you know you're saved. Right? That's what he's saying. We know you're chosen. Why? Because my message wasn't just words. It was power demonstration. Holy Spirit showed up, and that's how you know. It's predicated on that. It's not just simply words. We've made it all about words. You know, and, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about this. We need... To somehow get to this place to be effective again in our world. You know, our, our, we're post-Christian post, post, post now. Our culture's so pagan. Our culture is just as pagan as the Corinthians were. As the co pagan cultures of his day. Sexual immorality isn't even a moral, it has nothing to do with morals anymore. Just like it did back then. The good news, the gospel thrived back then. Why isn't it thriving now? Because of this. Because of this. It's void of power. You know, Paul warns of the last days, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. How many of churches have denied the power of God? And we wonder and sit back, why aren't people getting saved? It's not about being relevant. We are not trying to be relevant to pagans. We're not trying to get pagan culture in the church and be like, look, we're just as cool as pagan so-and-so. No. This is how the gospel works. Power. It's, you, can't, you can't argue with an experiential revelation of the Holy Spirit. You can't argue with an encounter. And if we're going to be effective again in the church this is how. It's not going to convince pagans through logic. We're post-post-modern now. We're not in the modern era anymore. Having awesome arguments isn't going to work. You know, trying to appeal to human wisdom, which is what Paul is saying, doesn't work. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to be cool to the Greeks. 
in the city of Corinth, oh, look how the rhetoric we have. Look at the wisdom we have. And we're going to try, try and convince you through human wisdom. Paul says that's foolishness. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the pagan world. It's not going to work. This is what's going to work. This is how we're going to do it. We got to get back to biblical Christianity. Okay, this isn't some pet doctrine I have about the Holy Spirit. This is fundamental to our faith. This is fundamental to the gospel message. We can't resort to pagan tactics. We can't resort to business technique to grow the church. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are. Paul says, don't you know you're the temple? Don't you realize who you are? You're not part of this pagan culture anymore. That's how much dignity he gives to the church. You are God's temple. Don't you know that? You're fighting over leaders and using rhetoric. No, Paul says, no. 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 We are not resorting to pagan tactics. We are not resorting to pagan tactics to try and convince people. Because like I said, if I get you saved through clever arguments, the only thing that has to happen is smarty pants atheist so-and-so who's better at arguing than I am will convince you out of your faith. Right? All he has to do is be a better arguer than I am. And then your faith is shipwrecked if it's predicated on my ability to convince you. If it's predicated on my ability to preach to you. Has nothing to do with human ability, has nothing to do with human wisdom, it has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit coming. That's it. That is the full message of the gospel. I don't know how we get back to that other than I'm trying so hard to teach us using the Bible. I'm not, I'm not trying to skew anything. I'm just saying, look, guys, how clear this is in the Bible over and over and over again. This isn't me just trying to be a hip or something. In fact, this is super unhip. To talk about the spirit. This is so unhip, it's not even funny. You know, the resistance you get. But I'm telling you, this is so scriptural, it's not even funny. You, you don't even, forget the book of Acts. Just read the book of Acts. I don't even have to, just throughout the entire Bible, the whole New Testament, over and over and over again. And somehow we've left the spirit to the periphery. I don't know how that's happened. I, I have to believe it's satanic. How for centuries have we gotten the Holy Spirit out of the church? How? If it's so clearly biblical. Think about the day of Pentecost was the birth of the church and what happened? The Holy Spirit came. That's it. That's what birthed the church. The Holy Spirit came. That's what makes us the church. The presence of God is in our midst. That's it. So these passages make it clear that Paul understood Christian conversion to begin with spirit-empowered proclamation. Talking about preaching now, the spirit was a vital part of it. That's why in Ephesians 6.17, he calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He's the one who brings that conviction. Okay? So for Paul, this double display of power, empowered words and empowered deeds, talking about miracles, signs, and wonders, forms the foundation for his understanding of the promised spirit. Forms the foundation. So the Spirit also plays a key role 
in the response to the gospel. I was talking about preaching there. I guess I, I don't know. I got, preached, I got my preach on there. But he's also talking about the response and the hearer is all about the Holy Spirit. He's the one who enables us to respond to the message. So, I'm going to show you this. I love this verse. There are, interestingly enough, very, I can't think of any, and I could be wrong, I can't think of any scriptures in any of the epistles that talk about the local church doing evangelism except this one. Not talking about accident, I'm talking about the local church community, but look at this. Oh, you guys don't have it up there. I'll tell it to you. This is so interesting, and it all has to do with the Holy Spirit moving mightily in their midst. Talking about 1 Corinthians 14, 24 to 25. And I'll read it to you since it's not up there. Look at this. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone's prophesying, you know, everyone's prophesying, isn't that interesting? They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Power demonstrations. Prophetic was so vital in the early church that Paul's saying, guys, you know how you get people saved? When you're all prophesying and an unbeliever comes in and you prophesy, conviction comes and then they say, Your God is really among you. You are serving the living God. Prophetic evangelism. Man, do I ever want... I am... My hope is that through all this ev- prophetic culture that we're trying to establish, it's the beginning points, that we would be prophetic evangelists. That is so effective. Okay, so that's our long-term goal with that. The point is the Spirit-inspired utterance revealed the heart of the hearer so to bring conviction, the Holy Spirit, of sin as well as the truth of the gospel which led to conversion, the response. Okay, you see, now I'm going to say, I'm going to write this down if you, don't, if you want it. Jesus says this. This is one of the roles the Holy Spirit plays. This is John 16, verses 7 through 9, and, 12, and then I'm going to skip to 12 through 13. This is Jesus speaking, okay? Verse 7, but in fact, it is, look at this, it's best for you that I go away. <laughs> Imagine that. He's saying this to the disciples. This was his last conversation with them, one of the last ones before he is crucified. And they're super sad. They're super sad. Of course they're sad. Their Messiah, who they've been walking with for three and a half years, is going to the cross, dying the most horrific death. And you know what Jesus says to him? It's better for you that I go. Unfathomable. Why, Jesus? He says, because if I don't, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. For that reason, it's better that I go. Isn't that something? How we've somehow taken the Spirit for granted, and Jesus says, him with you is way better than me in flesh with you. It's better that I go, so I send him. 
okay? If I don't go away, then I will, uh, if I do go away, then I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will look at this, convict the world of sin. Talking about conviction now, the response. And of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Then verse 12, I'm skipping down. I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The point, the spirit is a key. He plays a key role in conviction to the sinner and to revealing truth to the sinner. Both absolutely critical aspects of conversion. The Spirit, okay? That's why he, I said he plays a crucial role in all of this. I'm going to show you this, Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. Oh, good, thanks. Look at this. But what does it say? This is Paul now. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your, look at this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, remember that phrase, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. Now look at this. Remember, Jesus is Lord. That's what you have to say. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, or verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is crucial in our salvation. Okay? He's absolutely key in the confession of our faith through which people are saved. We're talking about the response now, right? It's crucial in preaching, crucial in hearing, crucial in responding, believing, and confessing. All deal with getting saved. Every part. So our believing or trusting, talking about faith, is the hinge point between our calling on God Jesus is Lord, and are hearing the gospel. Okay? Faith. Our trusting, in other words, our faith, now this is, this is interesting, divine mystery, is in some mysterious way the working of the Holy Spirit as both cause and effect. <laughs> I'll clarify. That is to say, the Spirit appears as both the one who initiates our faith and the one who's received by that same faith. You see that? He, it's interesting. He initiates it, and then he's the one who's received when we believe. I'll just show you one more scripture. I'll wrap up. You see this in, in Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches an amazing message. <laughs> then look what happens, verse 36, by the Spirit. And it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now look at this, talking about conviction. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Conviction. 
Remember, that's a work of the Spirit. And so Peter and the, to the Peter and the other apostles, look at this. What brothers, what shall we do to be saved? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And look at this. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The Spirit. You see that? He convicts them. They're like, what do we got to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. <laughs> You'll receive the Spirit. That's the evidence. That's the promise. The fulfilled promise of the new covenant. So what shall we do in light of all this? Just to wrap up. So my point today was that the conversion of an individual believer begins with the sovereign act of God carried out by the Holy Spirit. Crucial. Knowing this should affect our prayer lives when praying for loved ones as well as when sharing the gospel. Okay, so we want, I bet you most of us have people who we love, or at least know, <laughs> Who we want them to get saved. How should we pray for them? Knowing that it's the Spirit is the key to every part of the process of conversion, that the Spirit should be a crucial part of our prayer, that they would encounter and receive the Holy Spirit, that He would bring conviction of the truth, that they would get convicted of sin, that they would respond and believe and receive the Spirit. And, and that's why Paul and the apostle prayed, and you see in every one, the major apostolic prayers, he starts off by praying for the Spirit, that the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, you'd receive, that what? That God, through the power of the Spirit, would fill you with the knowledge of his will, through the Spirit. But look at this, I love this. Talking about the way the apostles prayed. Talked about the apostolic prayers, but look at this in Acts. I love this. They just healed a lame man who was is, who is like that for over 40 years. And they, they go in front of the Sanhedrin who has a big problem with this because they're preaching Jesus. And then they let them go, but they threaten them. And you know what they pray? They pray for more boldness <laughs> and more signs and wonders, the very things that got them persecuted. Look at this. Acts 4, 29 and 31. This is part of their prayer, the end of their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Remember, proclamation, part of the gospel. Stretch out to your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Demonstration, remember the full gospel. Proclamation, demonstration. They said, enable us to preach with boldness and do signs and wonders. Then look what happens. God answers their prayer immediately. And it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see that? Why not pray like they did? Why not take this and incorporate it into our own prayers? God. Enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch your hand heal, to heal signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Fill us with your spirit so that we proclaim boldly to those around us, our loved ones, 
who need to get the experiential reality of your salvation. So, uh, next one, I'm finishing. I'm just giving, what should we do in light of all this? I'm giving you some keys, some practical things to take home from this. This is Ephesians 6 now, talking about the armor of God. Verse 17, look at this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. (laughs) That's the sword of the Spirit. Conviction. Separating joints and marrow. Right? Discerning the thoughts and attitudes of the the sword of the Spirit. But then look at this. And pray in the Spirit. (laughs) Right? We're supposed to pray in the Spirit. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that, look at this, whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should, the sword of the Spirit. This is Paul saying, guys, this is my prayer request. Pray for me that I would preach boldly, that I would speak the gospel boldly by the power of your spirit. Okay, so it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The spirit enables us to declare the gospel boldly and fearlessly with power, spirit-empowered proclamation. This is also why praying and declaring the scripture is so powerful. The sword of the spirit defeats the devil. You see this when Jesus is in the wilderness. What did he do? He counteracted every attack with Scripture. It is said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It was his way of, def- that was our, that's our offensive weapon, declaring truth from Scripture. The sword of the Spirit defeats the enemy. So I recommend pray Scripture. Pray according to Scripture. He's gonna pro- he promises to answer according to his promises. But it's also when you're, def- when you're in the midst of battle, declaring the truth of Scripture is so powerful, the sword of the Spirit. So let's pray this. This is an example. I gave you that Scripture. I'll pray this for us. From Ephesians 6. This is how you can just take that and put it as a personal prayer. Okay? So let's bow our heads and I'm going to pray this over us. Father, we pray that you would help us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Help us to be alert and to always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. We pray that whenever we speak, words may be given to us so that we will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which we're ambassadors. We pray that we may declare fearlessly as we should. Help us to speak with great boldness, Lord. When we share the truth of the gospel, may people experience your spirit in a tangible way that lives would be transformed. That you would stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. In the name of your holy servant, Jesus, help us to live biblical Christianity. The love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it? Oh, it's just red because it is dying, maybe? Okay.
Um, I just wanted to clarify one thing that I, I know my husband's heart, and so I just want to make sure that one thing didn't come across. We are not trying to declare to you what is an experience of the Holy Spirit yes. and that you need to experience God in a certain way in order to be saved. Everyone's experience of God is different, and we would explain it differently, and it just is different because we're all different. Yes. But we, it's not like, oh, I haven't felt something that's like this, so therefore does that mean I have received the Spirit? I mean, the truth is you receive the Spirit by faith, by believing what you heard, right? So we receive the Spirit by faith, okay? So you don't have to worry, like, if you haven't felt the Holy Spirit in a certain way that you didn't receive the Spirit, the intention here is just that to acknowledge the work of the Spirit in salvation as it gives kind of honor where honor is due because the Holy Spirit should be acknowledged for the fact that he did bring us into salvation. Does that make sense? Awesome. So we love you guys. And do you have something else? I'm just going to say, thank you, Tricia. It always brings wisdom. I said that last week, and I want to say it again. Tongues is not the evidence you're saved. Some people make it that because, you, because it's true that if you have the Spirit, you're, that means you're, you have to have the Spirit to be saved. And some people say, look, you got to speak in tongues. No. No. What I love about Acts is there's no formula. You see people getting saved in different ways, and the experience reality manifests in different ways. So you don't have to roll around on the ground. You don't have to be drunk necessarily. Uh, that would be great, but you, don't, like, you see what I'm saying? You, sometimes prophecy, prophesying is the evidence that you've got the Spirit. Okay, so yes, thank you. I forgot to say at this time. I think and that's an issue people have when I say the Spirit is the evidence because they are like, oh, what are you saying? I need to get drunk in the Spirit or I need to speak in tongues? No, no, I'm not at all. Okay, so thank you. It can be a subjective experience. It could be goosebumps. It could be something, but the point is there's an experience. There's an experience, okay? Yes, thank you, Tricia. Yeah, whatever caused you to be saved, you know, it's like we all have our own stories and our own testimony of how God kind of put us in that situation, and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I just know that I know that I know that Jesus is God, and Holy Spirit is God, and, and you know, God the Father, you know, the God who was the God of the Jews and now saved all, that this is God, and, and it's a, a deep conviction and revelation, and so it doesn't, uh, the movement of the Spirit doesn't always look a certain way. So I just wanted to clarify that, that for you guys. So if any of you guys wanted prayer for what I talked about earlier, just seeking God for your role in the kingdom or prayer for anything, we invite you to come up. And the prayer team, if you could come up, we're available to minister to you guys. Otherwise, we have hospitality through this door and to the left. And we'll see you next week. Love you all.